Yeah, why don't you put here? You use this or you use Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Anyone? Morning. Thank you. Good morning. Thank you, Susie. Welcome to Pediatric Grand Rounds. Quite a crowd this morning. Welcome to Pediatric Grand Rounds, February 10th, 2016. Also the second in our Chad Dermatology Mini Fellowship Series. I'm noticing the screen isn't on to my left. Um, next week we have uh, Dr. David Crowley at Grand Rounds talking about why can't I just get an echo. And um, I continue to have a wonderful list of kudos. We don't always hear the kudos or the congratulations from, from folks and family and patients, but we have a patient family voices project through the Boyle program that does collect both, both uh, suggestions for improvement and also areas where they were very pleased. So, so a couple of notes from um, the team. A dad on, on 5 East on pediatrics says he likes the attention to detail my 17-year-old kid gets here. I hope they never change the definition of pediatric care, and it's too bad it's not 21, although I sometimes push it that high and higher. And a mom says uh, about the nursing care, everyone's been great, especially around our new diabetic diagnosis. I'm motivated to learn as fast as I can to get us home. The nurses in particular understand that and are rallying around in support of me and encouragement of him, my son, to make that happen sooner rather than later. So um, in general, your efforts are, are appreciated even if you don't hear it uh, frequently. Uh, Dr. Mann, who I introduced last month in um, really the fascinating discussion on, on hemangiomas, infantile hemangiomas, joins us again to continue her leadership of the, uh, the Chad Mini Fellowship Dermatology Series. As I mentioned, she's an assistant professor of uh, dermatology, pediatric dermatology at the Geyser School of Medicine, having uh, been a Dartmouth alum and returning to us about two years ago, a year and a half ago, from uh, Oregon uh, Health Sciences University, and is going to update us on the latest and greatest in acne management. Great. Thanks, Julia. Good morning. It's great to be back. Thanks for having me. So um, let's talk about pediatric acne. So here's what we'll try to cover this morning. We'll review the current classification of acne subtypes. We'll identify evidence-based indications for selecting oral and topical acne medications. We'll recognize important and potentially serious side effects of common acne therapies. We'll discuss the most recent understanding of how diet influences acne severity. And then um, we'll review some common acne mimics. So just um, to lay the foundation here, and just a quick review on the pathogenesis of acne. Um, so this is a nice schematic. If you look on, over on the left in panel A, this is a diagram showing an early comedo or blackhead. Um, so the infundibulum of the hair follicle is lined by keratinocytes. And early on, you get hyperkeratosis of those keratinocytes. Um, and they get more sticky. They stick together. And then the sebaceous gland is stimulated 
regulated by androgens. Later, you're getting the accumulation of those dead skin cells, the keratinocytes, um, and the formation of these concretions, um, and then progressing towards an inflammatory papular pustule, um, propionibacterium acnes, or P. acnes, enters into the picture, um, and starts generating some inflammation. And then over on the right is a larger nodular cyst where the follicular, the wall of the hair follicle has actually ruptured. And you actually get a foreign body response to those accumulated dead keratinocytes um, and a lot of inflammatory mediators. So there are lots of ways of classifying acne. You can classify it based on age and onset, based on morphology, based on severity. And I think all three have useful, um, all three are useful in different ways. So let's talk about age and onset. So um, neonatal acne, which we'll talk about in a minute, which is not really acne, but I'm going to include it here because it's so widely um, discussed and, and called neonatal acne. Um, that really is defined as um, acne-like lesions that appear from either birth all the way up until about six weeks of age. Um, infantile acne is true acne, and that appears at six weeks to a little bit then less than a year of age. And then mid-childhood acne is, is one to um, just under seven years. Pre-adolescent is seven to 12, um, or the start of menarche in girls, and then adolescent acne is the most common type that we're all very familiar with. So let's talk about neonatal acne. So most of the time, this starts at about two weeks of age, sometimes a little earlier, sometimes a little later, inevitably right when the families plan their photo shoot. Um, <laughs> presents as small papules and pustules on the forehead, cheeks, chin, scalp, oftentimes shoulders and chest, so it can kind of be in a cape-like distribution. There are no comedones, and this is not true acne. So I, um, I included it here just because everyone always asks about it, but it's not really acne. It's actually... Um, the predominant theory right now is that it's an inflammatory reaction to colonization of the skin by Malassezia or Pterosporum yeast species, which is a normal skin commensal. Um, and with all that great skin-to-skin -skin that we do now after babies are born, um, their skin gets colonized very early on by mom and dad's um, and other you know, caretakers' um, skin flora, and Malassezia is one of those normal flora. So we don't really understand why this happens, but it seems like the immune system kind of has a little um, reaction to that yeast when it's first coming onto the skin. It's self-resolved generally by 12 weeks of age, and this does not cause any scarring. So most of the time, we don't treat this. I'm sure you see this all the time. The only babies that I ever think about treating with this are babies who are really symptomatic. Some babies do get itchy from this, um, and they'll really rub their face into their parent's shoulder, um, and sometimes their eyes will even get a little puffy from it. And in those babies, a few days of ketoconazole cream um, can be really helpful. So the true name for this is neonatal cephalic pustulosis. So I call it cephalic pustulosis when I see um, parents because I think it really helps, you know, delineate for them the difference between this and true acne and puts them at ease that they don't have to worry that their baby's going to be scarred from it. So this is a picture of my own daughter um, who had really rip-roaring cephalic pustulosis. Um, and you can see very tiny papules and pustules. Often there's some scaling mixed in, and there can be a lot of um, overlap with this and seborrheic dermatitis, particularly on the glabella region. You'll often see a lot of scaling there. 
True infantile acne um, can begin as early as six weeks of age, typically lasts six to 12 months. Rarely, though, it can go on for years. There are comedones present, inflammatory papules and pustules. This looks morphologically exactly like teenage acne, except it's in an infant. This, um, in contrast to cephalic pustulosis, this can cause true scarring. And most of these babies are typically otherwise healthy. Um, you don't need to do a workup in most cases. And these babies are, you more commonly see babies who have infantile acne if they have a parent with a history of severe acne. So here's an example. Um, so if you look closely here, you can see, um, let's see if I can find my pointer here, you can see some comedones here and more kind of inflammatory papules um, on the cheeks. Sometimes it'll be one-sided, which is a little odd. I don't, um, I don't think anyone really knows what that's about, but sometimes it'll be only one cheek involved. Um, here's another picture of a baby with really prominent open comedones. And, um, and another one with more inflammatory papules. So, um, so this type of acne um, generally does not require workup. We treat it just about the same as we do um, teenage acne, although generally as much as possible we, we treat just with topicals. Mid-childhood acne, onset one to seven years of age, this is the most rare form of acne. So if you see a child who you've been seeing for well child checks and you are certain that, and the parents are certain that there was no acne until say three years of age and all of a sudden they've got new onset acne, that's concerning. And so these children really should all have an endocrine workup because the incidence of an androgen secreting tumor or some sort of ovarian or testicular pathology is quite high in this age group. Um, bone age assessment can also be useful. Pre-adolescent acne, um, the second most common type of acne, onsets 7 to 12 years of age. Um, and this is the result of normal adrenarche, testicular ovarian maturation. It often precedes other signs of pubertal maturation. So it's very common to see a 7 or 8-year-old girl who's got comedones, typically on the glabellar area, central forehead, and she's got no other signs of pubertal development. And understandably, parents are often worried about this, and they think, oh my gosh, you know, is this abnormal? or is my, is my seven-year-old about to get her period? Or, but often this precedes normal pubertal development by several years. So as I mentioned, predominance of comedones on the forehead and central face, um, sometimes progressing to inflammatory lesions. Um, <clears throat> and most of the time, unless you see other signs of androgen excess, workup is not necessary. So here's an example of just mild comedonal acne on, this, on the forehead. Um, another patient, this is an 11-year-old patient of mine, um, and here's a patient with more um, predominant inflammatory lesions. So now moving on to the most common age group affected by acne, 12 to 19-year-olds. Um, you know, studies say that some are up to, you know, 85, 87% of teenagers um, at some point have acne. So this is an extremely common problem, at least in, um, in Western developed countries. Some examples of your typical teenage acne, um, this patient with uh, deeper inflammatory pustules on the chin and jawline, and some associated scarring you can see on the temples there. I really think it's so important when you see a patient with acne to really look carefully, get up close, take a look, and if you see any scarring, little pits, little ice pick, anything, then really, in my mind, that puts that patient into a, you know, a different category where we really need to treat 
communicate more um, assertively, even if the child is not particularly bothered by it. I always have a pep talk when a teenage, typically a teenage boy, is brought in by his mom, and he said, I always ask, how much does your acne bother you? Scale of 1 to 10. And sometimes they'll say, 2. But they've got scarring on their temples um, or on their back or on their and I really have a heart to heart with them and I say you know I know that this may be you don't notice this now or this doesn't bother you now but a lot of guys by the time they hit 16 or 18 they're pretty bummed out when they realize that they have scars and we don't have great treatments for acne scars so look carefully if you see scarring in my mind that puts that patient in a different you know in a sort of a higher risk category Okay, so we talked about classifying acne by age. Let's talk about classifying acne by morphology, what it looks like. So the three main types, comedonal, whiteheads, and blackheads. And whiteheads, when I say whiteheads, what I'm referring to are um, comedones that are underneath the surface where you can't see the follicular opening, so like little those little kernels that are under the surface. And then inflammatory lesions are, are the actual pustules, papules, cysts. And then very often it's a mixed, um, it's a mixed presentation. So comedones, um, as you saw a little bit of in the beginning with that schematic I showed, these are the result of increased cell division and cohesiveness of those keratinocytes lining the hair follicle. They accumulate abnormally, they mix with sebum, and they kind of get sticky and they obstruct that follicular opening. And then typically this starts with a microcomedone. So some patients who have purely inflammatory acne will say, I don't have any blackheads. And that, that's, um, they, you may not see them with the naked eye, but they all start with these microcomedones. If the follicular opening gets dilated larger and you see that keratin build up, it's, it's a visible blackhead. So here's, um, here's another diagram showing the buildup of those shed keratinocytes sticking together with sebum. Um, in panel C, you can see that is an open blackhead um, versus D is a whitehead or sort of a blackhead that's under the surface. Here's an example of typical comedonal acne. The most common area where you see this is on the forehead. Um, and here's a typical example of inflammatory acne. Um, you can see lots of pustules. And then here's a very common presentation with comedones and inflammatory lesions. So we talked about age, we talked about morphology, let's talk about severity. So um, generally this, we classify patients as mild, moderate, and severe. And in my notes, in my assessment plan, I pretty much always categorize acne patients that I see. I give them one of these three labels just because it helps me in my mind um, sort of uh, stratify what my treatment approach is going to be. And I, and I hope it communicates to you my um, sort of perception of how important it is to, to go ahead with treatment for, for the patient. There are lots of severity scales, um, many of which overemphasize inflammatory lesions. So some patients who have really terrible comedonal scarring acne, um, and sometimes even those prepubertal kids who have it right on their central forehead, they can get ice pick scarring just from those comedones. Um, they are kind of missed by a lot of these in these um, severity grading scales. So it's important to keep that in mind. I always take into account the body surface area involved, the extent of scarring, and the impact on quality of life. So um, I think those are all really important factors to consider. 
it's worth noting that acne severity, um, the, the impact on quality of life does not always correlate with objective acne severity. So some, particularly girls, some girls who have by objective measurements relatively mild acne are just really fixated on it and feel like it really affects their social interactions. Um, and some guys who have pretty terrible looking acne, they really, it doesn't impact their quality of life much at all, at least in the moment. We talked about the potential for scarring down the road, but um, I think it's important to, to realize that um, females feel much more embarrassed about acne in general than males, um, although that's of course a generalization. And then there, you know, there are some studies showing that um, teenagers report the, the effects of particularly moderate to severe acne on their life and their social functioning um, are really significant, with some patients rating them just as highly as something like asthma um, or a seizure disorder or arthritis. Um, so it's something really, I think, to not trivialize um, when we see it in our patients. So let's talk about some evidence-based indications for how you pick what acne treatments to use in a given patient. So the general principles of acne treatment. So we want to reduce sebum production. We want to prevent the formation of those microcomedones that I, that I showed you. We want to suppress or reduce the amount of P acnes on the skin. And we want to reduce inflammation to prevent scarring. As a general um, kind of guiding principle, I think it's really important to use the least aggressive regimen that's effective while avoiding regimens that encourage the, the, the development of bacterial resistance. So I, I highly recommend this article to anyone who hasn't read it. Um, Larry Eichenfeld is a, um, a real leader in the, in the world of pediatric dermatology. Um, he's a great guy, and he and a number of other very um, experienced and wise pediatric dermatologists um, put together this consensus statement for principles for treating pediatric acne. Believe it or not, this is the first consensus statement that's ever been published. So it's evidence-based. It's from 2013. It's a very approachable article. I'm going to show you some diagrams from that article, but it's a great kind of cornerstone for acne management. So let's start with the simple basics. So benzoyl peroxide, I love. Um, it's available over the counter. I typically recommend somewhere in the 2 to 5% concentration. You can get it up to 10%, but the 10% um, strengths in most cases for facial acne is no better than a 5%, and it just tends to be more drying. Um, the exception is that back acne responds well to that 10%. So sometimes for patients who have bad facial and back acne, I'll have them get two different strengths if they're too dried on their face from the 10%. Um, I tell my patients to get this on Amazon because it is really hard to find this in pharmacies. I'll, I can't tell you the number of parents who, yes, when I first started my practice here, I would get phone calls. I've called eight different pharmacies and nobody has this, so I just started putting in my, you know, the AVS for everyone. Just get this online. It's really easy to find online. Um, salicylic acid um, washes are not nearly as effective as benzoyl peroxide washes. So. Let's talk about how it works. So it's lipophilic, so it permeates right through the stratum corneum, which is that outer layer of the skin, um, and it enters into the pilosebaceous unit. So it goes right down into the hair follicle, um, and it oxidizes proteins in the P acne cell 
P. acne cell wall, and it reduces the amount of P. acne that's there. It also has comedolytic and anti-inflammatory properties, so it can bust up small comedones, and it can help with the inflammation associated with typical papules and pustules. And the, the really key, really important function of benzoyl peroxide is that it limits the development of P. acne's resistance to antibiotics. Um, it works well in combination with topical retinoids. That's sort of a synergistic combination. Um, and so far, antibiotic resistance to benzoyl peroxide has never been reported, sort of like bleach in that way. Um, it, you know, it works kind of in a physical mechanism almost. Um, and it's much more effective than salicylic acid. So, um, so I always, always, always recommend benzoyl peroxide to virtually all of my acne patients. Um, it's, I think it's a real cornerstone of management and just a very simple, easy thing that's often overlooked. It's important um, to mention to parents that benzoyl peroxide, the peroxide part of it, will bleach out towels. It's mildly photosensitizing in theory, although I don't really see that effect in my practice. Um, some patients can get dry and pink and a little peely, so start with lower concentrations in patients who have dry, sensitive skin, and then um, you can have them use emollients and gradually increase the concentration as needed topical retinoids. So the most common ones that we see are adapalene, otherwise known as Differin, Tretinoin, Tazeratine, which is Tazerac. Um, these normalize desquamation of the follicular epithelium. So they help, um, if you picture in that, that diagram I showed you where all those keratinocytes are kind of clumping together at the opening of the, of the hair follicle, um, retinoids address that part of the equation. So they prevent the formation of new microcomedones and they help clear existing comedones. They do have some anti-inflammatory activity as well. So um, here's a patient who's been using a topical retinoid and just has been a little bit too um, enthusiastic about applying it, applying too large, too thick a layer. Um, and so you have to counsel patients about how to apply retinoids for them to be um, adherent to their regimen. So I always start at a low strength, particularly for younger kids. I almost always start with tretinoin 0.025%. I use a cream um, and I have them use it initially two, maybe three nights a week. Gradually increase over the course of four to six weeks to using it nightly. Um, and there's some patients who even doing it that way, they still can't tolerate it and they get pink. And so for those patients, you can have them use it just as a mask therapy. So have them put it on for an hour or two and then wash their face and put a moisturizer on and go to bed. The other tip is that you can have them put a thin layer of um, just a non-comedogenic um, moisturizer on first and then put the retinoid on top of. Make sure they know to apply a pea size for their whole face. So this is one of those things where sometimes teenagers who are like, I'm going to get this acne, and then they just slather their face in tretinoin, and they just have this awful, you know, pink peeling reaction. So make sure they know that more is not better. Um, recommend that they use the sunscreen every day while they're using this because tretinoin is definitely photosensitizing. So it's really important, I think, to put instructions in the after visit summary and either you or your nurse go over this with patients because I see so many patients who come to see me and they say, oh yeah, my pediatrician gave me that tretinoin, but I couldn't use it. It just it dried me out way too much and they just kind of abandon it. So I think it's worthwhile to counsel them more upfront so that they'll stick with it. So um, <clears throat> let's talk about antibiotics and acne treatments. So the goal is to reduce the colonization of P. acnes and decrease inflammation and decrease neutrophil chemotaxis. 
So clindamycin, um, in my experience, clindalotion is the most well tolerated by patients, if particularly if they have sensitive dry skin. If they tend to be on the oily side, you can use clindagel instead. Um, it's it, depending on which pharmacy you go to. It's somewhere between sometimes closer to sixty dollars um, up to in the low one hundreds out of pocket. But the vast majority of insurance plans, um, including Vermont and New Hampshire Medicaid, will cover this medication. Um, you always should use this in combination with benzoyl peroxide. And so the reason why we don't use it as monotherapy is it doesn't work as well, and then it's real set up for P. acne's bacterial resistance in, if you use it without the benzoyl peroxide. Erythromycin, I use that sometimes for little infants who have acne, um, but erythro resistance is becoming really widespread, um, so I don't tend to use that one as much. Topical Dapsone, worth a mention here, I almost never prescribe this. Um, it's a newer topical medication. It is safe in those who are sulfoallergic. Um, it it is, is newer and it's extremely expensive. It's over $300 for a 30 gram tube. Um, and I um, also have concerns that eventually we're gonna see antibiotic resistance develop with this because if you use it in combination with benzoyl peroxide, it turns the skin orange. So I almost never use this medication, but it's out there. Um, the brand name is Axone. So I think it's important to realize how expensive the combo topical therapies are. Um, so we probably all, where everyone's aware of the struggle, the challenge of getting particularly teenagers to adhere to an acne regimen, because it can be challenging. Um, and so these combo medications, they have a role. They certainly have a role, I think, for select patients. But I think it's important to realize just how pricey they are. So um, Acania is one of the newest ones, benzoyl peroxide, clindamycin, $575 for 50 grams. Um, Epiduo, $300. Benzamycin is a little more. Um, um, affordable, the erythromycin, though, in my experience, is just not quite as effective um, in some patients. And then um, Ziana, $750 for 60 grams. So I probably can count on one hand the number of times I've prescribed a combo topical regimen in the last two years. I mean, I just almost never do it. Um, I think it's sort of a stewardship thing. It's a, although some insurance companies will cover these, it's still obviously a major cost to our healthcare system. So I pretty much always, my sort of starting combo is tretinoin 0.025 and over-the-counter benzoyl peroxide wash. And even for, for patients who have no insurance, typically if you get one unit of each of those, that'll last between three three and six months, depending on the area of acne involved, pretty affordable on a month-to-month -month, um, basis. So oral antibiotics, most are not FDA approved. The only one that is is extended release minocycline or solidine. Um, and keep in mind that has nothing to do with the effectiveness of solidine versus other medications. I think that's surely a pharmaceutical representation kind of thing. Um, so the most common that we use are doxycycline and minocycline. Um, erythromycin, just the resistance, has become so prominent that we don't use that much anymore, aside from select populations like pregnant women or um, occasionally infants. Alternative agents, which I do use um, with a fair amount of regularity, amoxicillin, cephalexin, azithro, and um, I rarely use Bactrim, but some people do use that to treat, to treat acne. So doxycycline, it's important to counsel patients about phototoxicity, phototoxicity and GI effects, so nausea and 
so-called pill esophagitis. Esophagitis is really common with this medication, so they have to take it at least an hour before they lie down horizontal. And they always need to take it with food. Sometimes the pharmacist will still put on there, take on an empty stomach. I think especially some of the older pharmacists who think of tetracycline class antibiotics as needing to be taken on an empty stomach. So always counsel them to take it with a meal. Um, calcium binds to doxycycline and makes it ineffective. So you have to counsel patients that, although it's not dangerous, if they take this with a big glass of milk, um, it's going to be a lot less effective. It can't be used in patients less than eight years old because of the impact that it has on tooth enamel. Um, and rarely, pseudotumor cerebri is a potential side effect of, you know, so-called benign um, intracranial hypertension. So um, that's very, very uncommon, but it's um, something to be aware of. Minocycline, on the other hand, um, in the first two to eight weeks of therapy, you can develop, patients can develop this um, pretty serious drug, hypersensitivity syndrome, that's not reported with doxycycline. So they develop flu-like symptoms, kind of viral exanthem-like um, rash, facial edema, cervical lymphadenopathy, elevated LFTs, pneumonitis. So the, the, this drug-induced hypersensitivity syndrome is also called DRESS, drug reaction with eosinophilia and systemic symptoms. Um, Patients can also develop a serum sickness-like reaction, vestibular toxicity with dizziness, vertigo is also not that uncommon. And then with longer-term treatment, they can develop this gray-blue pigment deposition in the skin, mucous membranes, sclera, and nail beds, as well as tooth discoloration. So here's an example. Um, it's subtle, but once your eyes notice it, you'll see... Do you see this blue-gray deposition right along um, kind of the wet-dry line on the vermilion lip? And then also subtle, hard to photograph, but these sort of bruise-like areas, which um, oftentimes are hard to recognize at first because they just look like mild bruises, um, but they don't progress to sort of a brownish color and yellow the way a normal bruise would. And then here's a more dramatic example on the dorsal foot. And this is all from minocycline. The, the gray-blue deposition does not occur with doxycycline. What's a little bit scary about minocycline um, is that you, could, you actually get you can get grayish deposition of this pigment in internal organs as well, um, which has been reported. So um, as you can tell, minocycline is not a medication that I really like using very much for acne, and this is another reason why. So this is separate from the drug hypersensitivity. The drug hypersensitivity occurs in the first two to eight weeks. Minocycline-induced autoimmunity is typically seen in kids who've been on this for longer, um, months to years, and it presents typically as malaise, polyarthritis, arth arthralgias, autoimmune hepatitis, which can be really severe, vasculitis. They often have positive ANA, sometimes an antihistone antibody, although not always. Um, and then these patients can develop this really frightening cascade of other autoimmune events. So I've seen six young girls or women who've developed this minocycline-induced autoimmunity in my relatively short career thus far. So I do not use minocycline in teenage girls. I just don't use it. Um, or, or in prepubescent girls, for that matter, either. Um, 
this side effects really can be pretty severe. I've seen, um, I saw one girl who developed something like six autoimmune sequelae. I mean, she, it, well after the minocycline was discontinued, it was, you know, pernicious anemia, vitiligo, psoriasis, alopecia areata. It can be really um, scary. So if you prescribe minocycline, you have to counsel patients about the potential for this. And if they develop any weird symptoms, they just got to let you know right away. So let's talk about antibiotic resistance, big issue when you talk about acne management. So we talked about some, uh, a really simple strategy, which is to always use common, uh, benzoyl peroxide in combination with oral and topical antibiotics. Um, limit the duration of exposure. So taper or discontinue within one to two months once they start to improve and new inflammatory lesions have stopped coming. And really, I tell parents we aim for, realistically, it's often about six months of treatment and we get them off and try to put them back onto topical. Um, if retreatment is needed, you should use the same antibiotic that worked for them in the past. The more we cycle through different antibiotics, the more that promotes the development of resistance. So big picture safety concerns. I talk to parents a lot about this at visits. Um, we have to be aware of the emergence of resistance strains. We have to be aware that we're altering gut flora um, and oropharynx flora. And then there's this question of the risk of inflammatory bowel disease from the use of oral antibiotics. So. Um, there are a number of trials. I just picked out a couple of them to show you that really demonstrate that we are definitely changing oropharyngeal flora when we put kids on oral antibiotics. So this study showed um, that, you know, it's a small study, um, 20 patients. They all had normal flora, um, 20 patients in the, in the tetracycline treatment group. Um, they all had normal flora before treatment, and then a quarter of them had um, Staph aureus isolated from their nasal um, vestibule, and then um, in over a third of them, their oral flora was what they called suppressed, which is basically just not a normal distribution of flora. Um, the isotretinoin group, on the other hand, their flora was not altered. Um, Association with pharyngitis with oral antibiotic use has been demonstrated in several studies um, showing a 3.5-fold increase in the odds of self-reported sore throat among college students taking an oral antibiotic for their acne. Mm -hmm. So the current thinking around this is if we alter the oropharyngeal flora, we're perhaps predisposing them to developing a viral upper respiratory pharyngitis. Um, this is one that I think a lot of people are not aware of. So there is this potential association between the use of oral tetracycline class antibiotics to, use ac to, to treat acne and the development of IBD. Um, so this study that was well done showed a hazard ratio for developing any form of inflammatory bowel disease from the use of a tetracycline class antibiotic was 1.39. Um, and then the Crohn's hazard ratios were more significant, so um, as high as 2.25 for doxycycline. And so the proposed theory behind this is if you, if you change the gut flora, perhaps it unmasks um, this genetic predisposition towards developing inflammatory bowel disease. And I think, you know, there's, we're really at the start of an explosion of research looking at how the microbiome influences the development of these inflammatory conditions. So. I think it's important to recognize that there's, a, I think, a very strong possibility that perhaps it's actually just acne itself that's associated with IBD. So there have been a number of studies looking at whether isotretinoin is associated with the development of IBD. Those haven't really panned out. Um, there have 
studies showing yay, yay and nay on both sides of the aisle there. Um, but a big, f a big factor here is that patients who have particularly moderate to severe acne, um, that may end up falling into this class, you know, sort of into a category of um, auto-inflammatory disorders. And maybe those patients just at baseline have a higher risk of IBD for that reason. And maybe we're blaming the treatment, but really it's an underlying um, condition. Maybe this study is actually in part measuring the risk of isotretinoin exposure because many patients who don't respond to oral antibiotics initially are put on isotretinoin. Um, and maybe it's just that um, patients on doxycycline who have GI complaints get sent to you know, their PCP or, their, or a GI doc for evaluation of these GI symptoms and then inflammatory bowel disease is discovered sooner. So let's talk about oral isotretinoin and acne. Um, so this is the only medication that targets all of those factors, right? So topical retinoids deal with comedones, oral an and topical antibiotics deal with inflammatory papules and pustules. Isotretinoin does all of the above. Um, consider isotretinoin for patients who don't clear with antibiotics, who recur soon after stopping oral antibiotics, who have any amount of acne scarring, or really I think we can add a fourth category onto that. Um, which is patients whose parents or the patients themselves have real concerns about the safety of oral antibiotic use. And I do not require patients who have moderate to severe acne um, to always, without exception, do a trial of antibiotics first. So I think um, it's worthwhile recognizing the potential side effects of those oral antibiotics and having a conversation with parents about it because oftentimes isotretinoin has kind of a bad rap, like, oh, it's a really serious medication and let's just do some antibiotics. And I often talk to parents about the fact that really there's a lot of evidence that has me concerned about particularly long-term oral antibiotics for kids with acne. So it's the highest clearance rate of any acne treatment. Unlike oral antibiotics where recurrence is common, um, the vast majority of patients who do an isotretinoin course remain clear after they stop. Um, usually I do a six-month course for patients with tougher acne. I'll do as much as eight to nine months. Um, side effects, everyone knows about the dryness, the chelitis, the photosensitivity. Um, occasionally their triglycerides can go high or their LFTs bump up a little bit. Generally, if you reduce the dose in those kids, things go right back into the normal range. Um, perinicchia, so inflammation of the nail folds, and PG-like growths have been reported. I see that um, occasionally. Again, usually responds to dose reduction. Um, and then some parents ask about bone effects, and I just, I reassure that I think although high-dose isotretinoin um, treatment, particularly for conditions other than acne, sometimes has, um, there are like a few case reports of hyperostosis, bone fractures, it's really uncommon in otherwise healthy teenagers. So um, isotretinoin and inflammatory bowel disease, um, just briefly, um, a number of really large, well-done meta-analyses have showed no relationship. And in fact, um, that last bullet point, a 2014 study in JAMA Dermatology showed a slightly lower risk of IBD among kids treated. And the authors postulate that perhaps, again, if it's the acne itself that's predisposing to the IBD, perhaps isotretinoin treatment is actually protective because it has that sort of anti-inflammatory effect. The same way that patients who have psoriasis have an increased cardiovascular disease, again, thought to all be sort of this auto-inflammatory, um, and when you treat their psoriasis, their cardiovascular risk down the road goes down. So mood, I always mention this when I do my long talk with parents about risks and benefits. Um, 
so there are case reports of teens developing depression or suicidal ideation while on Accutane, um, but in general, just having acne is a real risk factor for this, and there are, I think, well-done studies showing no risk, no true risk associated with isotretinoin, and in fact, some well-done studies showing that as acne improves, so does quality of life, um, and that depressive symptoms actually decreased as acne improved. So this is sort of a typical Accutane patient. Just They come in just beaming at the end of their treatment, and they're so happy to finally be clear. Yeah? Do I work a few reports about advancing bone age mm -hmm. with higher-dose tretinoin? Mm -hmm. And then I've had personal experience with three children who are just on typical acne doses and you know, really did not reach their full height potential. Mm. And it, it really looked, you know, they had just... Causative. Yeah. I think, I mean, I think, um, I think the studies are really mixed. Most studies show that that risk is, is really, um, it's an issue with isotretinoin used at higher doses and for longer periods for treating things like severe ichthyoses or other skin conditions. Um, I, I always have the conversation with parents about it, and I spend a lot of time talking if we have a, a child who's, say, 11, who has severe scarring acne, because I worry more about those kids than I do about a 16 or a 17-year-old, for sure. So. Um, I think it's, I mean, I agree with you. I think it's probably a real association in a small percentage of patients. Um, and parents need to be aware, but it's, I think it's hard, especially when you're dealing with scarring acne, you're sort of weighing that against, you know, these other small theoretical risks. So, yeah, I think, I mean, thank you for bringing that up. I, um, I think it's important that parents are aware of it, for sure. So hormonal therapy for acne, so oral contraceptives, um, the three that are FDA approved, orthotricycline, estrostep, and Yaz. Um, so uh, again, to, to Dr. Casella's point of just effect of these treatments on, um, on, on bone mineralization and bone density, um, I think we don't yet have great um, Data. I think the jury's still a little bit out about whether initiating oral contraceptives really early on in, in adolescence has any impact in the long run on bone density. So um, I generally wait until at least a year after the onset of menses to consider an oral contraceptive method in a, in a young female. Um, spironolactone has androgen receptor blocking properties, um, and occasionally um, we do use it for older teenage girls, particularly jawline acne that really flares with monthly cycles that's not responding to oral antibiotics, particularly if they prefer not to do isotretinoin. So I thought it would be useful to just go through a few cases to kind of illustrate um, decision-making around treatments. So here's a 15-year-old with mild comedonal inflammatory acne. So best initial treatment here, over-the-counter sal acid wash, clindagel, over-the-counter benzoyl peroxide wash plus tretinoin 0.025 plus clindamycin lotion or topical dapsone. So answer is C here. That's what I typically start with for kind of um, mild to moderate acne. Um, I just always start with topicals, and you always include that benzoyl peroxide. How often do you have them use the wash and the top? Um, good question. So I, I have them start out using the benzoyl peroxide 
two or three days a week if they look to me like they're going to be kind of set their skin's going to be sensitive. If they're like oily 16-year-old boy skin, I just I use it every day and they do fine with it. Um, but just once a day. Yeah, just once a day. And then tretinoin, um, we work up starting at two or three nights a week. The Clinda lotion, I typically, depending on their severity, I'll have them use it once or twice a day. So, yeah. Given the 15-year-old boy, um, it, do you see any effect if you just start with Benzoyl peroxide, or do you always just go for all three? Um, sometimes I do all. Uh, sometimes I do start with just benzoyl peroxide, particularly for those kids who say my acne bothers me a one or two out of ten, and my mom dragged me here. And I'll say, okay, let's just like crack the door open here with just benzoyl peroxide wash. We'll get you into a good habit with that, and then I see them back in three or four months, and we add gradually to that. So yes. So here's a nice schematic from Larry Eichenfeld's um, article, that consensus statement, um, which is just nice flow charts. And so you can refer to these in my talk or you can refer back to them um, in the article itself. Okay, so here's a 16-year-old boy with moderate inflammatory acne for a year. He's on topicals, and this is what he looks like when he comes back to see you. And you can see, I would say, if you look at his chin, this is a patient who I think is... Um, there's some risk of scarring here. I mean, they're deeper inflammatory papules. So what would you do here? Add erythrogel, increase the topical tretinoin, put him on Accutane, stop the Clinda, and put him on Doxy. So I would probably stop the Clinda and put him on Doxy here um, for three to max six months after, of course, counseling patients and, you know, patient and parents about potential risks. What's the reason to stop the Clinda? I just feel like most kids, if you put them on an oral, they don't also need a topical, and it's sort of like double doing. Um, but you can. I mean, these here's the here's the protocol here. So initial treatment, start with topicals, um, or if they're well, on the more severe side, you can start with oral antibiotics. If they don't respond, you can change the topicals, um, or you can, you know, there's a lot of flexibility here, or just go right to Accutane. I mean, so, but they're general guidelines here. Okay, 13-year-old boy, sorry, 15-year-old boy, severe inflammatory acne with scarring, unresponsive to three months of doxycycline, benzoyl peroxide wash, and tretinoin. Next step here, I would generally start Accutane in this case. If he looks like this on that regimen, he's got clear scarring, particularly on the temples, um, so that would be my pick. So here's the severe acne um, kind of flow sheet, flow diagram. So let's just quickly touch upon how diet influences acne severity. Very common topic parents ask about this. So whey protein. Got to ask, especially teenage boys, especially teenage athletes, if they're drinking protein supplement shakes. And um, whether it's grass-fed whey or whether it's your GNC whey, they all can have an impact. So um, there are several studies showing that at baseline, this one on the first bullet point, 30 patients, about half of whom had mild to moderate acne, they all start, you know, they all were supplemented with eight weeks of whey protein and every single one of them developed acne a third almost a third of them developed severe acne um, five case reports um, another pediatric dermatologist reported this um, just in her practice in a short period of time teenage boys who started these supplements um, who all developed bad acne none of whom responded really well to traditional regimens and then once it was discovered they were drinking this whey shake stuff and they stopped it their acne um, really melted away. So it's really important to screen for this. 
Um, milk consumption is another important issue. Um, milk contains bovine um, insulin growth factor 1, um, which binds right to those human IGF-1 receptors. Um, they, milk also contains dihydrotestosterone precursors and can induce an increase in endogenous IGF-1 production, particularly um, in the case of skim milk. So IGF-1, we know, promotes androgens, growth hormones, and glucocorticoid production, which just exacerbates acne significantly. And it's also a potent mitogen, so it makes those hair follicle keratin sites proliferate more actively. So um, a pro prospective cohort study um, showed that self-reported acne severity correlated with total milk consumption. Another one of boys um, showed a positive correlation with skim milk only. And then I think uh, an in, uh, really probably the best done study was a case control study um, in Italy that showed um, an odds ratio of 2.2 if more than three servings of skim milk per week was consumed. And I think the idea is that skim milk contains a higher proportion of that whey protein. Um, in comparison to whole milk or low-fat milk. Um, so the, the risk associated with 1% and 2% milk is definitely less. So I always ask patients about this, and pretty regularly I find a teenage boy who's drinking like six cups of skim milk a day, and those patients, for sure, when you reduce their milk consumption and switch them to low-fat milk, their acne improves substantially. Cheese and yogurt, no effects. So I always counsel parents. That's how you can get their calcium intake, um, but just got to cut back on the milk. Glycemic index in acne, another important point here. Um, so it's just observationally um, been noted that hunter-gatherer populations have almost no acne, and those societies um, who eat a Mediterranean diet, also very low incidence. So yeah, this South Beach diet um, it, study is pretty funny. It was just an observational study. Um, but a lot of those patients reported that their acne improved um, and that they were able to reduce the amount of the acne medications. Um, that should say dose or number of acne medications. And then um, the last study um, is that just looking at patients with acne, a lot of them self-report when they do a diet, kind of a food catalog, higher glycemic index foods. So you all know this, um, but it's important to explain it to patients. What does that mean? Um, and so here's a, an interesting study showing that actually if you do an intervention where you randomize kids to a low glycemic index diet um, and you, they actually measured you know, th compliance through urine, creatinine excretion, and it was pretty extensive, um, and then acne lesions were counted um, by blinded investigators and they showed that the low glycemic index group had a significant reduction in lesion counts after just 12 weeks of a low glycemic index diet. So I, again, always talk to parents and patients about this. Um, it certainly can't hurt their overall health to make some of these changes and reduce the amount of processed and refined carbs, and it certainly may help their acne as well. Here's just some, an example of the improvement just from the low glycemic index intervention um, at the 12-week mark in that study. So um, an interesting, another interesting theory of why this might work is that low glycemic index foods actually alters the proportion of um, MUFAs to, S to SFAs, the monounsaturated fatty acids, to, to saturated fatty acids. Um, so MUFAs are known to stimulate those sort of acne-promoting um, things in the skin. And so if you can increase the relative proportion of the saturated fatty acids, people's acne improves. And so low glycemic index foods seem, seem like they actually shift the sebum composition um, in, in young adults. 
So um, in the last few minutes, let's just touch upon a few things that um, can mimic acne. So when acne really isn't acne. So pustules don't necessarily mean that that it's acne. And just be sure to look at the morphology. I mean, get. I think a lot of um, a lot of the time. Um, People don't necessarily get right up and look right at the skin closely. I mean, dermatologists love to do that, but just don't be afraid to get right up there and look right at their skin and see, is this, are these funky looking or is this really typical acne? So um, this is a really florid example of this condition, but I see this certainly sometimes um, parents think that this is acne. So this is periorificial dermatitis in a young child. So when you see um, papules and pustules predominantly around the mouth and around the nose and sometimes also around the eyes, um, particularly if there's some scaling mixed in, um, that's periorificial derm. And the pathogenesis of that is really different. So periorificial derm typically does not scar and there's no comedones. Um, and it's thought to really be a variant of childhood rosacea. And so those patients respond well to different topical antibiotics like metrocreme um, and sometimes even non-antibiotics um, like protopic or elidel. Um, Periorficial dermatitis, you should always screen for over-the-counter topical steroid use. So topical steroids often are the, are the culprits for this condition. We also see it in kids who have asthma inhalers, um, and they just are getting sort of a missed exposure of a glucocorticoid that way. Another example of periorificial derm with more scaling, um, but you can, kids can present with just papules and pustules in this condition, particularly older children. Okay, this was a patient referred to me in Portland for evaluation of acne, um, but actually these are angiofibromas seen in tuberous sclerosis. So angiofibromas, if you just glance at this patient, you could see why she kind of does look like she has acne, but if you get up close, oops, if you get up close, um, these are sort of flat-topped pink papules. There are no pustules, there are no comedones here. Um, and occasionally I've certainly seen patients who present for the first time, I mean, I make new diagnoses of tuberous sclerosis in five and six-year-olds, not that uncommonly, probably a couple times a year. And they come in with this acneiform eruption, which are really are the angiofibromas, and that, then you look at them and you find the Ashley spots, and that's a new diagnosis. So something to be aware of. Um, Acne on the arms, particularly if there's no acne on the trunk, usually is picked at KP. So um, this is keratosis pilaris. KP is very annoying to a lot of teenagers, especially boys, and they often really go after this. And so they pick at it so it looks crusty, they get inflamed, um, and they can really mimic acne. But um, generally for KP, I just recommend really gentle skin care, emollients, no loofah sponging, um, no scrubbing, just gentle skin care, moisturizers, and no picking. Okay, how about this? So let your eyes acclimate. We're talking about these guys here. So these are flat warts. So I also see flat warts referred as acne sometimes, particularly, again, if they're being picked at, which makes it harder to see. But if you get up nice and close, you can see the morphology there is quite different. It can mimic closed comedones for sure. Okay, how about this? This is regular old staff, right? So 
pre, you know, that childhood acne, before you label a child as having childhood acne, just make sure they don't have impetigo, which is obviously way more common. And then this last one, um, this is more of a zebra, but this was a patient of mine in Portland um, who had been, was being treated for acne but had these really firm, indurated nodules on her chin. We biopsied these and identical histology to Crohn's um, and revealed the diagnosis of intestinal Crohn's as well. So sometimes you get these real zebras that can mimic common things as well. So um, just to review, some take-home pearls. So mid-childhood acne, onset one to six years old, is a very rare and should definitely prompt um, at least consideration of an endocrine workup. Be sure to look at all those children for any signs of androgen excess. Always use benzoyl peroxide in your regimen if you're using any form of antibiotic, topical or oral, in order to decrease the development of antibiotic resistance. Um, limit oral antibiotic courses to three to six months, and then always try to switch back to topicals. Be um, screened for family history of inflammatory bowel disease before starting doxycycline or minocycline. Um, I always screen for it when I put kids on isotretinoin. Um, be aware of those really potentially serious autoimmune sequelae of minocycline treatment in young women. Um, recognize that isotretinoin is well-tolerated, safe, and an excellent choice for patients who are unresponsive to oral antibiotics or, or who have scarring. Screen for whey protein supplements and skim milk consumption, especially in teenage boys. And then for motivated patients, talk to them about a low glycemic index diet um, to reduce acne severity. And then remember those acne mimics, peripheral derm, KP, flat warts, angiofibromas, and staph are the most common. Thank you. That was thorough. We're sort of out of time. And I hope Sam and Julianne will agree with me that even in adolescent females with refractory acne, we consider endocrine causes like PCOS. Oh, of Keep course. In the back of your mind, not just for the younger, uh, of younger course. girls. And there's a lot of questions, so I'm going to ask you to come on up and ask Julianne. Sure, sure. Thanks again. We'll be back next month. Thanks. That's great.